Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. For me, it was bad. <laughs> it was a, a lousy connection. I, it, was, it was a lousy connection. And, I'm, and uh, Although I teach about uh, uh, no preference, that's for you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that must be really bad. Yeah. Just a quick announcement before we start. Somebody lost... Uh, a key, a car key, their Honda key with a black top. Anybody? Is, keep your eyes. I said this can be now a group connecting experience where we can all be supportive of... Um, who was it uh, that lost the key? Where is she? Oh, uh, yeah. So. The problem is you two have been connecting with each other too much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so if you find a key... Anywhere around uh, belongs to them. You can just bring it up to us or if you see them. Do you have a spare? Okay. Someone came up to me during the break and asked me if I was okay now. You know, because I said I was nervous when we started. And, and uh, I want you to know that I'm still freaking out. Um, it's really, really hard. No, I was, I was actually, t- I was actually saying to James before. He said, "He said, how, how are you doing?" Uh, and I said, "Hey, I'm no longer a rookie." You know, it's like in, in, in sports when someone's gone through part of the season, you're no longer a rookie. So we're going to be exploring connections in a slightly different way now. And knowing that, as as James was talking about earlier. We, as human beings, are wired to connect. And from, the, from the earliest experience of a child or an infant coming out of the room, let alone, let, let alone being in the womb. I mean, we talk about connection, the umbilical cord. I mean, we all come into this, this earth through our mothers. And there is that flow of energy that is within, and then when we come out, it's still there. It's symbiotic. And over time, we, we individuate, more certainly, but we never, ever lose the desire, in fact, the need to connect. I think one of the fascinating things you hear a lot about in our culture is the importance of being a strong individual. Like, you don't need anyone. I want to be in a relationship where I have... No needs that the other person has to supply. I used to believe that, and uh, let me tell you my relationships, uh, they didn't work that well. It's important to recognize that we do have dependence on other people. Dependence has somehow become this bad word. 
you know, to acknowledge that. You know, ultimately it's about interdependence, you know, that we need each other. No man or woman is an island, you know, as it's said. And we as human beings are social beings. We are wired to connect. We literally, you know, we, we look at from the beginning of human civilization, people didn't live alone. We lived in tribes and clans, groups of some type or other. And what would happen if someone was excluded from the group? They what? They got picked off. They got picked off. It's not like a sniper or something picked <laughs> off. They didn't have those back then. But when you when you get when you're excluded, you die. And so when we we look at some of the fears, the social fears that come up around being excluded, or believing they're going to be excluded, they track back directly into survival issues. And it can be very confusing living in a modern world because, in some ways, you could live alone. It seems. Because you can just, you know, there are people who they make money from their, you know, working on their computer and they barely have contact with any other human being, except as a, a trend in a transactional kind of way. It's kind of sad. Now, in terms of connections, we also learn about connections through modeling and imitation. And we learn watching our parents. How many of you had great role models of parents connecting? That's you know about right, ten percent. <laughs> mm. And 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 those ten percent, you're in denial, aren't you? <laughs> you know, as a therapist, so, so sometimes we joke around like when, when someone comes in and they say they've had a happy childhood, you know, oh, it's it's going to be bad. You know? <laughs> Not to say that I'm I'm joking, kind of. Now, what we see is that nature plus nurture can lead to the experience of ambivalence because as, as natural as it is that desire, in fact, that need to connect, we grow up in you know, families and subcultures where, this, where connecting is not so easy. Like when a kid expresses a need for something, the kid is shamed. You don't need that. What's wrong with you? Or simply ignored what happens is you start to create this neuroassociation that your need to connect is bad, wrong, and dangerous, essentially. And so the way your brain starts getting wired is that connecting, reaching out, asking, initiating, equals threat. And since as human beings we are oriented toward avoiding threats... You know, moving toward opportunities, moving away from threat. When connection is associated with threat, it creates a, uh, an ambivalent situation. Now, ambivalence in relationships seems to be uh, here to stay, you know, on some level. You know, why is it that if you're a dog person or a cat person, you don't seem to have ambivalence about that relationship? <laughs> it's just pure love. It's so easy they're not going to reject you. Uh, maybe some cats will. You know. But dogs will not reject you. Bias, bias. I'm biased. Okay. Hate me for it. I didn't say cats were bad. Uh, uh, there, there was a cartoon about a, a dog and a cat, and a, they were laying in bed, and they're both reading. 
and the the dog was reading a book as he was looking at the at the cat saying for dogs who love too much <laughs> and the cat was reading a book that said not looking at the dog at all balls of yarn They're all beautiful. <laughs> so we're going to take some, a look at some of the obstacles to connecting. I'm talking about already some of those, that the way we, we learn to associate threat with connecting. And what happens is that when that's the case, and it is the case for most of us certainly, that we can experience some kind of reflexive as, a, as opposed to reflective. Reflexive, just kind of unconscious, unthought, unmindful fear. Now, I'm not here to say that fear is, is a bad thing. Fear is natural. We need to have fear. People who have had fear regions in their brains uh, hurt, tumors cut for some, for some reason, they don't do well. You need to have fear. So it's not like sometimes people you know, badify, I like to make up words, badify fear, you know, or wrongify, like it's a bad thing. Fear is fine. It says, what do we do with the fear, you know, when it comes up? Is this something that so-called realistic fear, and as human beings, we're not very good at appraising that, what's realistic, what's not realistic? And so unresolved reflexive fear tends to breed defensiveness and ignorance. And so defensiveness is, only exists because of fear. If there were no fear, we would never get defensive. And basically, there are four different types of fears. You've heard of fight-flight. I mean, that's, con that's all over the place. And then there's freeze. And then there's appease. You know, I'm going to appease. I'm actually coming from a defensive place, but I want to make sure you're okay. You're, are you okay? I, I care about you. You're not okay. Oh, no, I'm going to die. So what we find is that defensiveness... Uh, plus ignorance leads to an unwillingness to learn and evolve. See, the thing is that when you're in a defensive state only and you don't have a vision about what you want, you're just in one of those states, then you tend to not be thinking creatively in innovative ways and looking for solutions that are more expansive. You tend to try and get out of the immediate danger of that. And the problem is that sometimes the immediate danger happens to be just being in relationship with other people. Because the neuroassociation neuro is that when you're in relationship with people, it's dangerous. You can't reveal certain things about yourself. And so, for example, that last process that you guys did, which I've done many times, is talking, talk, revealing yourself you know, in the presence of other people, a lot of people have massive fear about doing that. And why? Is that natural to have fear to reveal what's going on inside of you? Is that natural? Yeah. No, it's not natural, but it is neutral. That's not really a word, but it should be. <laughs> you know, it's like from that nurture comes the fear. 
And what we find is that the fear architecture in the brain is hardwired in. But there is a lot of soft wiring that happens based on experience. And when experience, again, is associated with threat, the, it combines with that hard wiring to make you keep away from. Does that make sense? I tend to look at life many, in many ways as having the grand continuum from defensiveness to openness. And by the way, I'm not saying that defensiveness is bad. It's, it's natural. Sometimes it's very important to be defensive. So it's not like I'm always, always like I'm going to leave Spirit Rock today and I'm, oh, I'm going to be totally open to everyone and everything forever. <laughs> I'm going to trust everyone with all my money, you know, and all of my heart. No, we're not saying that. It's and just... Your and your car keys. Thank you, Bill. That, that was important. So it's, it's really about how do I actually get to a point where I'm a little bit more in charge of and aware of when I am becoming defensive and how to work with defensiveness. Because we all get defensive. And then... The, the important thing, then, is to be mindful of that, not to, not to badify yourself for being defense. We're going to get into that in a moment. And so what we find is that most problems, and I would say most of all problems on this planet, really come from unresolved defensiveness. You know, when it comes to people, you know, individuals, and from communities to states to countries interfacing with each other, so much of the problem is we're defensive, which is driven by fear. And so that the newer evolving uh, belief around that there's only love and fear, I'm, I'm not quite there you know, myself, but I do see that fear, from my perspective, is the controlling emotion. It tends to control people because it's associated with survival. And the brain is always asking the question, is it safe? And that's the prime thing. Like, you come in here today, and if you knew James, you know, you say, okay, he's safe. But I don't know about those other people. I don't know about this, this Daniel character. You know, or the people you're sitting around, you come in, the part that says, I, I want to I make sure that my car is in a place where I can get out of here. Because it's oriented toward threat in that way. John Paracas, who was one of the uh, founders of Bioenergetics, said a defended person has no room for love or compassion. He or she, yes, when we become defensive, is too busy defending himself or herself. And Will Schutz, uh, who was the original encounter guy at Esalen, said, what we don't like about people are their defenses. And I think that there's, there's a, really a lot to that, because I know... You know, having worked a lot with my own defensiveness, and I've been an extremely defensive person, that over the years, as I've opened up more, I, I attract more people to me. I'm not fighting, I'm not because I'm not as oriented toward threat. I'm not saying I'm not oriented toward threat. I am. But it's very different than it used to be. And it's like really, I think, just as an important practice, it's like challenging yourself. You know, really challenging. So I'm going to really go for it. I'm going to go and talk with that person that was sitting there. 
I've already said, like, we're really looking at defensiveness education in terms of not badifying defensiveness. Because, again, in the practice of mindfulness, whether you're sitting on the cushion or you have your eyes open and you're walking into a party or you're walking into work, you're there. When defensiveness is there, which is going to be there on some level or other, pretty much all the time, you know, unless you're in those rare moments of just total openness. You know, there's going to be some confluence of defensiveness and openness there. And so we're not talking about saying, oh, darn, I'm being defensive again, because that would be being defensive about being defensive, right? It's, it's a recursive process. It's much more about noticing that, noticing defensiveness emerging, and being curious about that. Because sometimes people will think like, well, you're, if you're defensive, then you're not open. And I don't see it that way. I see that one of the big things to do is actually be open about being defensive. And this is a really key point in relationship. Because, you know, whatever kind of relationship you're in, you can be sure you're going to get defensive, right? Right? No, not me. It's those other people. So to be aware of that and share about that is really part of how you start bridging back from the defensiveness. My wife has a thing. She goes, you, you guys have heard the amygdala, which is flights, it triggers the whole fight-flight system in the limbic system. It's all over the place these days. Uh, and she says, when, you, when, you're, when your amygdala is like freaking out and saying, Dan, you say, good amygdala. Good, it's like, good boy or good girl. You know, you're trying to protect me. It's not evil, bad, or wrong. It's just trying to protect you. Now you have a new thing. Actually, you have a new bumper sticker, good amygdala. A few people understand that, not too many. And so it's really our evolutionary system trying to protect us. And that's a really important way of framing it. And I'll tell you an experience I had last summer where I had, I had gotten emails for I don't know how many years in a row from this person who I knew from years ago about they always have this yearly picnic at a, at a China beach in Marin. And each year I would see the, see the uh, email and I'd go, oh, that sounds like a good thing to do. And every year I, I wouldn't do it until this past summer my wife was away, and I, and I just thought, you know, I think I'm going to go. And so I decided to go. It's a beautiful, sunny day. I drove out to China camp, and I was fine. I wasn't just looking forward to the picnic. And then I saw the parking lot. And when I saw the parking lot, beyond the parking lot, you'll never believe what was there. People. <laughs> there were actually people at this picnic. And what happened was that I just had this intense feeling of anxiety in my chest. That's where I tend to carry it. It was like, wow, it was like super intense. And I just sat there for a moment in my car. It was like almost hard to catch my breath. And I, and I, You can feel it, Spirit Rock, huh? And I noticed that something had changed in me. 
it was quite 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 prominent because I I thought of this Mary Oliver a, a line from the journey where she's you know and there was a new voice that you suddenly recognized hmm. as your own and what happened was I heard this voice <clears throat> that said you know it's natural that you would be nervous you don't know these people you don't know who's there you're wired as a humanimal for stranger danger. That's a major concept in evolutionary psychology. You're wired to not trust people you don't know. And that's true. That's just what happens. That's why you come to Spirit Rock and you go, ah, it's about connection. But you're still nervous. Why are you still nervous? Your brain is wired that way. And so I stepped out of it being about me being anxious and I let go of, the, of that critical voice that I've had many times. I said, what is wrong with you? How many years of therapy have you had? You know, how many times have you been around people? You've gotten through, you know, like that voice. You, you know what I'm talking about? I didn't do that, you know, at that time. And it was fascinating because when I just let myself be with that, it shifted and it just dropped. But the thing is, with working with one's unconscious, you can't fool your unconscious. You can't just use it as a technique. Oh, yes, I totally accept you. That won't work. Because someone inside is actually paying attention. I love the, the, the definition of self-esteem from Nathaniel Brandon, who was one of the people, he was the person who coined the term self-esteem. He said, self-esteem is the reputation you develop within yourself. You can't hide from yourself. And Joseph Ledoux, who was the person actually uh, started uh, researching the amygdala. How many of you have heard of amygdala? Um, yeah. How many of you are not willing to admit that you haven't heard of it? Okay. So he said, survival is not just something we do in the presence of a wild beast. Social situations are often survival encounters. And that's, it's kind of a weird thought, isn't it? Because you think, like, why would a social situation be a survival situation? You know, I, I see a lot of people, myself included, at least historically, would be shaming, like, why would I be so scared? Well, actually, it can feel very threatening to be in relationship with people, part of the whole stranger danger thing. And so really one of the big messages in this is to appreciate your anxiety. On some level, appreciate your symptoms. They are, they're not bad. We tend to want to get rid of things, but we can't get rid of these things. We have to open to them. So... Any questions? Any comments? So for me, um, it's the exact opposite. I'm incredibly comfortable being around a lot of strangers in any situation I'm ever in, but I have more anxiety walking into a party with all of my friends. Hmm. And I don't know why, because I know they're my friends. I know we're going to have a good time, but it's that initial anxiety of walking in that door every single time. Yeah. I have no idea what that is. I would suggest that uh, there's some part of you that doesn't know 
that. Like when you say, I know I'm going to have a good time, there's a certain level of confidence, confidence, con, with, fence, faith, you know, that you're going to have a good time. And part of you knows that, but part of you doesn't know that. And the part of you that doesn't know that, I would become curious about. You know, because there's a high likelihood that there's some association, and I don't know you, I'm just riffing off the top right now, which I'd love to do. Uh, there's a, there's some, some association of close in people equals danger, threat, in some way. Uh, or else you wouldn't be having that experience. And so then it becomes like curious, like what is that? Curiosity is highly underrated in a certain way in terms of self-exploration. Yes? With that picnic experience, you said you, did you just say, okay, it's okay, I'm afraid, and it went away? Is that how it worked for you? <laughs> Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I think it was, it was more like getting, letting go of it being um, personal. You know, that there, there was a way that I have historically, and I know I'm not alone, taken my own psychology, symptoms in a, in a very personal way. It's me. It's me this is happening to. It's me. And in the last number of years, it's, I've become more and more aware that I'm not so special. My mother was wrong. You know, so it's like, like taking this, like it's like somehow unique, like that's what happens with human beings. We're wired that way. And so it's more having that macro perspective that it would be natural for a human being to be, to be experiencing this in this particular situation rather than it was somehow about me. And I think that there's something important about that larger perspective and getting like, hey, we're, we're, that's, we're wired this way. I look at it that we have certain design flaws, you know, in a certain way that we happen to be at this particular point in evolution. You know, there are evolutionary biologists and psychologists who really look at how human, human wiring hasn't really changed since, you know, for 50, 100,000 years. We have, our brains haven't changed very much. And consequently, we're wired to be oriented toward the Pleistocene age on our iPads and iPods. So what I'd like you to do, does everyone have a piece of paper? Pen? Okay, so you don't, you don't need one for this. <laughs> I just wanted to know if you were taking notes. No, I would... So what I'd like you to do is to just think about this. If you have a, if you have a pad, you can write this down. It doesn't, th- th- either way is fine. So what I'd like you to think about or reflect on is that when you lack feeling connection, what's the first feeling you have? Now I'll just tell you that oftentimes people are not aware of that first feeling. But I'll give you a clue. It's usually in the territory of fear or sadness. It's not joy. And then when you feel that, how do you defend yourself against that? Or what defense emerges? That, that's probably more a better way of looking at it. What defense emerges to perhaps keep back, keep that initial feeling at bay? 
And then lastly, what do you do? You know, what, what, what behavior do you do then? And just take about 30 seconds. If you, if you zip through one, you can move on to a second. Should have a little music like in Jeopardy. You know, do, do, do. Okay, so I'm going to think about yours and I'm going to share a couple of these up here, which are very common ones. And by the way, a schema, I have a survival schema. A schema is kind of like a belief template or lens that, in which we learn about the world. We can't keep recreating the world moment to moment, so we develop beliefs. Beliefs, in some ways, are kind of like our, our long-range, you know, threat and opportunity detectors. There, and so we see things through the lenses of our beliefs, and our beliefs can change over time, certainly. But it's important to recognize that we're not seeing the world the way it is. We're oftentimes seeing it more the way we are. And which is not to say that it isn't like that also, certainly. You know, I often hear people tend to, uh, talk about, like, you're projecting, no it's, you're, no, it's true. You're projecting, no, it's true. I have a saying that just because you're projecting doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> so in this particular schema, when I lack connection, I feel fear. And when I feel fear, what I do is I defend against that fear by getting angry. And what I do then is I fight. And so if we, if we look at every behavior where there's a lack, I'm not talking about when you're experiencing a state of joy, but when there's, when there's a feeling of a lack here, a behavior is an attempt to fulfill something that's lacking. Does that make sense? And so what we do is we put this together. I fight in order to experience connection. That, that could be seen as a schema that's not necessarily geared toward fulfilling that which is lacking. <laughs> now, in, in this one, I feel sad when I'm lacking connection. What I do is I get numb. <coughs> or what I def- how I defend against that is I numb, get numb, which is freezing. <coughs> Fight, flight, freeze, appease. I freeze, essentially. And what I do is I withdraw. And so I withdraw in order to experience connection. <laughs> Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So part of why I'm doing this is because to become more aware about what you do when you're lacking something. In this particular territory, you know, you could use this format for pretty much anything you know, that you're lacking. We just happen to be exploring connection here. I was like taking a look at that and go, huh, is this what I want to be doing? Is this how I want to live the rest of my life? Because on some level, it's just easier that way to do what you've been doing. It's in the comfort zone. Remember my my first supervisor, his name man named John Enright. I don't know if any of you knew of John Enright. He was a you know of Enright. He was amazing character. I, I had a relation with him for years. 
And he, he said to me something as a, uh, I heard this from 31 years ago, and I never forgot this, and I'll share it with you now. He said, be it ever so shitty, there's no place like home. <laughs> Why? Because it's familiar. Better the devil you know. Better the devil you know than the angel you don't. You know, because you know you can survive that. It may be really lousy, but you're still here. You're not sure about if you take certain risks, if you still will be. So goes the mind. It's pretty cool, huh? We're not talking about the military here, by the way, with defense contracts. Now, one of the, as I was talking about before in terms of defenses, what's, I think what's really, really important in relationships is to have some kind of understanding and agreements about defenses. Because generally what happens is people just get defensive and then the other person points the finger at them. You're being defensive. And that really helps you open up, doesn't it, when you, when, when you hear that? You know, or they, they withdraw, all kinds of different things. It's just, it's not a conscious process in general with how people deal with defenses at home or at work. And I see this, I do some organizational consulting also, and I just see that, you know, it's not like people aren't themselves. They're not like people when they're at work. They get defensive. I mean, that's a lot of what happens. Those are massive people problems because people don't know how to deal with defensiveness. So, what I'd like you to reflect on for a moment, close your eyes for a moment, please, or if you, if you want to you keep them open, and take a moment to reflect on how you would finish this sentence. I know that I become defensive when. I know that I become defensive when. And you may even reflect on a particular person who you happen to become defensive with. And perhaps someone you want to create a closer, more connected relationship with. And as you reflect on that person or people who you'd like to do this, Finish this sentence in your mind. When I become aware of this, this defensiveness, that is, I commit to. When I become aware of this, I commit to. Okay? Now, will you turn to a person, please? Just find one partner quickly. You don't need to shuffle all over the place. And will you share with your partner here? You're just going to have a couple minutes total, you know, for this. What you know, what, I know that I become defensive when, and when I become aware of this, I commit to.
Oh, thanks. It's half over. No, I... I Will you thank your partner, please? Boy. You know, judge, judging by that incredible hum and buzz in the room, it, it seems like you guys are aware of your defensiveness. So, want to hear from one or two of you if you'd like to share? Let's see, Bill? Bill? Um, so one thing I've been I'm noticing a lot about myself is that uh, I've either in the past gone out to try and make things better, or, but from a fearful place, or then more recently have just completely withdrawn. And so what came to my mind now is that I'm committing to when I notice that fear or anger coming up that I um, sort of allow what's happening instead of trying to change it right. and then find some compassion somewhere which is I think where I've been erring that's it sweet yeah one more person right behind you Bill uh, what I noticed that the legal metaphor is perfect for me because I start building a case. It's like, all right, point one, point two, point three, right. point four, right. uh, and I'm, I'm struggling a little with the uh, with the uh, uh, commitment piece. Of what I came up with in the moment is to to to, to at least take a break. To at least, you know, all right, stop yeah. at three, <laughs> put it aside. Uh, that's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, because essentially what you're doing is you're doing a pattern interrupt. At that point, the pattern is to build up a build up a, a case, and, and I have a feeling that you're pretty good at it. I could just tell the way you were making these points you know, as, as as you were speaking, and and to just stop the pattern is huge. You know, that's that's a, a massive thing because in the stopping, something else can emerge. So that's great. Now, there's the interpersonal piece of this also, you know, which is who you would actually be saying that to. And you can actually become allies in defensiveness, or uh, is working with defensiveness. You're already allies in defensiveness. You know, so if you work out with a friend, a colleague, a family member, you know, your a life partner, you know I'm becoming defensive when you notice me, because there's a high likelihood that those people in your life notice you becoming defensive. And they, ev- they may even notice you becoming defensive. They may become aware that you are becoming defensive 
even before you are. Imagine that. Because every time you become defensive, they notice, for example, that your face changes or you, you know, your shoulders go up or you have a certain tone in your voice or your, your, your head takes a certain tilt to it. And if you can actually be allies in that and give each other support, that's a great thing. My wife and I ha- have this, this thing where uh, if one of us is, bi- is a little grumbly, and it, uh, I confess it does, if there's a grumbly person, it does tend to be uh, her. No. Uh, <laughs> me. <clears throat> we have this thing like, do over. Like, just go outside and come back in the house again. Oh, hi. <laughs> Sorry. Dinner's not ready? <laughs> we used to do, many, many years ago, we used to do this, have this little joke that we, we do, like when we'd be blaming each other for something, we, we created this song. And so we go, I am a good person, and you are a bad person. I am a good person. And we, we couldn't do it without laughing. And laughter is a great pattern interrupt. And it's a great way of, of you know, breaking defensiveness. However, it can also be dangerous if the other per- you try to make a joke and it's the other person. So it's, it's an edge. If you become aware of my defensiveness before I do, I would like you to. So, for example, it may not be, you're being defensive again. You're probably not going to ask the person to do that. But you may just go like, lift a finger. It's usually good to have a very simple signal rather than a complex statement. Mm -hmm. So I hope that you attempt, at least, to implement your defense contracts. That's you. That's me. Yeah. So we'll do uh, one, one thing uh, more before we, we break for lunch. Um, the, the thing about fear and love, uh, I am in that camp that says um, when, when there's not fear, our natural expression of our being is love. And I, I see on a Buddhist perspective... All the states of well-being are expansive states or generative states. Generosity, uh, kindness, compassion, caring. Our body and our minds and our hearts are open. All the states of suffering, what are called unwholesome states, akusala, are states of contraction. Fear, um, confusion, anger, uh, grasping, all of those are kind of um, imploding. And when we're tight and contracted in our bodies and in our minds and our hearts, it it doesn't feel good. So the first step, as we're saying, is first to notice the contraction, not with judgment, but with, as Jen was saying, with compassion. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, it's, this is really hard. And that in itself is a movement towards relaxing. Uh, but I wanted to, before we, um, before we break for lunch, um, share with you another, another possibility, which really for me was a turning point, kind of like your picnic experience uh, many years ago, 
where, as I said, I was, I was very, very shy and fearful and wondering if people would like me and uh, like that. Besides my, my close friends, particularly new people, particularly girls. In those days, we called them girls. We call you guys girls. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, you women, girls. Um, and... Uh, it was, it was really hard. And then at one point, this is in my early 20s, I had a, a very uh, profound um, epiphany uh, that really changed my life from being cynical to starting to s- see other possibilities that led me on the road to uh, seeing, seeing the good around. And that was... The first, the understanding that I was creating this self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, people are going to find me boring, or oh, how am I going to be? And uh, I, 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 you know, I hope I don't make a fool of myself, and like that. And in this um, uh, revelation, in seeing how I was creating that, you know, we are all energy transmitter receivers. That's how I think of us, each one of us. And when you're around somebody, say, who's anxious and fearful, you might have compassion for them, but it's not like, oh, great, I want to hang out with you. It, it, it rubs off. And so it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where people aren't gravitating to be in your energy field. But when you're around somebody, say, who is not focused on themselves and who has more of a, uh, an ease and an interest and a, um, uh, a loving energy field, you want to move into that energy field. It resonates with you and it brings that out in you. That's why we like being around loving people or uh, bright people. Not that one should be bright and happy all the time, but generally... We like that. That positive energy reminds us. So when I had that revelation, uh, I um, I realized that if I could somehow figure out how to not get caught in my thoughts of how things would be, and to have a different kind of a thought, that basically I'm okay, or that people. Uh, enjoy me, that I'm lovable, that that would give out a different kind of um, field. And so I, this is true, I made uh, an experiment. For one week, I would act as if people really enjoyed being around me. And I was, it was such a powerful revelation that it was very much in my consciousness. I just pretended that I was lovable, right? besides my, my close friends. That was uh, a weak experiment that is now going on 43 years. Um, because what I found, and it wasn't like I instantly changed. Certainly there's a lot of conditioning, but when I was not so focused on how I'm messing up. And really, uh, what happens then is you become kind of interested in the other person. Then I started to relax, and people would be 
uh, I would notice the different energy that would come towards me. And it was the turning point, a milestone in my life. I, I write about this in the book on the, the chapter on learning to love yourself, which for me is a key piece in connection with, with everyone. And we'll be doing more of this in the afternoon too. But what I found was that instead of focusing on yourself and saying, What's, how am I looking? How am I coming off? To be interested in the other person, first of all, it's not self-conscious. And secondly, uh, there's a kind of ease where you don't have to be brilliant or witty. You just have to be interested and take the focus off of yourself. See, oh, who's this person there? You know, They can... And I started, you know, I realized, oh, I don't have to say anything other than just be an interested uh, audience. And people would say, you're so much fun to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) What a relief it was, you know. (laughs) And, um, And so I kind of put that out that it's more about really, if you can, and do this as an experiment... Play around with, if you have that tendency to see, how am I coming off to just be an extension of love and, and realizing this person is just probably as frightened and, and, uh, and scared of intimacy as you in their own way. And just see them and let them know that they're loved. They will start loving hanging out with you. Now, where it starts getting a little tricky is with people that we feel very close to, who we know that there's a love there, but when it becomes, instead of loving seeing them happy, to, I hope they don't disappoint me, again, that energy field gets shifted. So I want to uh, just do a very simple exercise with you um, now. So just take a few moments. It won't be a dyad. You don't have to go anywhere with anybody else. Just go inside for a moment and um, think of somebody who you really have a warm, loving connection with, who you you just enjoy hanging out with. who touches your heart. And imagine who, somebody who's really important to you. And just imagine seeing them happy. Just see a big smile beaming on their face. And first, get in touch with how much that delights you. And send them a few moments, of, a few thoughts of of loving-kindness. Oh, may you really be happy. And know that I really, I really love you. And notice how it feels inside your mind, inside your heart, inside your body. Just to send them thoughts of well-wishing. 
And now, for a moment, think of how it is when you want something from them, when you hope that they don't disappoint you, when you have an agenda for them. Because they're so important to you, and you really want a certain kind of behavior or response. And you're afraid of not getting it. How does that feel? Notice what it feels like in your body, in your mind, in your heart. I won't leave you here. Take a breath. And once again, see them in a happy moment. And again, delight in their happiness. When you don't want anything from them other than to see them at ease and happy. May you really be happy. May you see all the goodness inside that I see. May you feel my love for you. And notice how it feels in your heart, in your mind, in your body. Are you awake? Oh my goodness! Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, when is that? Do, do you still love me? I'm just testing you. Wow! What is that? Hey, Sean. Wow. Well, let's just come back to yourself. Feel a connection with yourself. Do you notice a, a difference between those when you're saying, I hope you're happy, oh, how much I love you, to I hope you don't disappoint me. And when somebody has that towards you and you, they're feeling, you're feeling their love for them, for, for you, you want to enter into that space, right? When somebody wants something from you, don't blow it for me. How do you feel? Like you want to move away. So is like this self-fulfilling prophecy. So with this sense of connection, what I, I really um, encourage you, two points from the, both of those, uh, those um, experiences. One is, as far as if you're feeling a bit disconnected and not, um, not at home or not comfortable, See what it's like, if you can, just imagine that people feel fine about you and wish them well. That's, that's how you move from, oh, am I enough, to, oh, I hope you're, you're, uh, you're happy. May you be happy. You don't have to say it, but just feel it. That's an opening, an expansive quality that people love hanging in, hanging out with, and just be interested in them. 
And if you're with somebody who you really, who's important to you, just notice the difference when there's an agenda or when you're, again, just extending well-wishing to them and the difference in the energy field that gets set up. Now, one last little extra credit assignment during lunch. Partly, we are... um, we keep defending ourselves when we are defending. We're defending and we're missing. We're not connecting and letting in all the goodness and the love that's coming our way. Anytime, this is an important practice for me, anytime somebody smiles at you or says hi genuinely and really cares, Uh, even if it's just a clerk in the store or somebody opening up the door for you, that is a moment of connection. We have to be present for it to really take it in. But if we can take it in and feel that connection, not only, oh, it's nice to connect with this person, but that that person is an agent of life letting you know that you are loved. This is one of my main practices, to let in all the good energy coming your way, not out of, not cutting it off out of fear, but just, ah, hey, there's a smile that's come my way, and to let in all of that love, um, that keeps us it retrains our mind from thinking I'm not good enough to, oh, I'm loved. So those are a few different practices. Let in any kind of good energy coming to you. Don't miss it during this lunch hour. Uh, wish others well, and we'll be doing more of this in the afternoon. The afternoon's going to be a lot about different practices. And um, just notice any kind of an agenda, and again, wishing, wishing well. Those are a ba- they, the basis to defend, to uh, um, address the defense contract by just letting it out. And we'll be practicing more of that the afternoon. Yeah. Um, someone from the staff has been asking me. Go ahead. Yeah. We will, we will address this during lunch, and hopefully it will change. Um, Someone from the staff has asked me to make an announcement that my books over there are on sale. And, and as much as I would love to donate money to Spirit Rock, and I do, those are actually not to Spirit Rock. You know, so if you're interested, take a look at those. And there's also flyers for upcoming events, a couple of them at Esalen yeah. uh, in the fall winter. So have a great lunch, everyone. Wait, and what I, time are you going to... Actually, and, uh, I, and I want to also mention, buy my books. There's a list if you want to be on my buy activities. Buy James' book. Like, besides the book. <laughs> if you want to find out about uh, different things that I do, you write, name your, uh, put your name on a list out there. And uh, one, I'll tell you, uh, let's come back for, to she lunch. She was just saying something. James, at, the list is actually on the same book with Daniel. Oh, it's on the table with, with, with Daniel's stuff. Okay. And also, um, so how about if we take an hour for lunch? Will that work? Yeah. Um, and uh, w- one, one other thing that uh, I want to mention, which is about Donna and the way uh, things work here at Spirit Rock. Probably many of you, are, who, if you've been here before, you're quite familiar with this. But um, all the teaching is done here 
in a spirit of generosity. So what you pay for the day just goes to Spirit Rock and uh, none goes to uh, Daniel or myself. Uh, that's the way I've been teaching for 30 years. Uh, and your support is very much appreciated. This is All of Spirit Rock is run on generosity, what's called dana. And uh, there's no right amount, uh, you know, well, what do I, what should I give for this workshop? Well, you, you can... You can get in touch with what works for you, but the idea is for it to be uh, an expression of joy, the joy of generosity. And whatever your circumstance might be different from the person next to you, but your um, support is really um, greatly appreciated. This is, this is how I support myself, and, uh, and Daniel now is, uh, yeah. is coming. This is a the... first for me. <laughs> yeah, what are your workshops usually? <laughs> no, I won't ask. <laughs> Anyway, uh, uh, that's a practice, and you can make it out to Spirit Rock. Um, and uh, while you're uh, at lunch, um, stay connected with your experience. Okay, wherever you happen to be, let it be okay. If you're feeling, oh, this didn't work, whatever, just give space for it. And if you feel like connecting, if you want to uh, do your lunch in silence, Absolutely, and stay connected with yourself. If you want to connect with another, um, that's, that's fine for, for this day. Uh, let's keep this hall silent so people who want silence uh, can, can have that. And uh, we'll see you too. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.